0: Hello my fellow questers! Before we begin today, I want to give a quick shout out to our newfound friends at the Alexander Standard. Meredith and Dustin do a great job of covering the rulers after the demise of Alexander the Great. But a picture is worth a thousand words, and a podcast is worth even more, so here's a quick trailer to show you what they're all about. Meredith, and my name is Dustin, and we're the host of the Alexander Standard. <coughs> That's better. Inspired by Rex Factor podcast, we rank all the successors of Alexander the Great, from Perdiccas
1: to Cleopatra the Seventh.
0: After Alexander the Great died, really
1: hit the fan. Seriously, the Hellenistic world was a crazy place, and we've got some crazy stories to tell you.
0: So please come check out our show, the Alexander Standard. In today's quest, we meet the man who smashes the expectations of what it means to be king. Everything up to this point is child's play. This is Quest for Power. Welcome back to the Quest for Power, where we are ranking and reviewing all of the European monarchs from the early Middle Ages to World War One. We are Scott and Michael, and we are going to be your fellow travelers through history. And today we are going to be continuing uh, our forward momentum and building up the Kingdom of France alongside our newfound clo- uh, friend Clovis the first. So speaking of building a kingdom, uh, just like Clovis, uh, we're going to be building our own kingdom. So if you're looking for some extra content and you want to support us, uh, which we'd greatly appreciate, we are building a library of extra stuff at patreon.com slash quest for power.
1: Currently, we have a pretty cool Sieges episode, which you and I really enjoyed going through um, discussing, you know, all the different uh the advancements throughout the years and sieges and uh today i've been working on um uh episode for the medieval church so if you find today's episode when we talk about the church interesting we really deep dive into everything that involves the medieval church because the church is going to be in every single one of our episodes i think yeah, i don't think we'll, we'll ever escape it so i think it would be a good idea to know exactly what we are talking about so i figured it'd be a pretty good deep dive to go into exactly just some extra
0: context for uh for you to know exactly what it is we're talking about and some of the uh historical context
1: yeah so scott what have you been up to we haven't uh talked in a while probably since last recording to be honest
0: yeah so i've been kind of just doing this and that uh but i got to see the new uh oppenheimer movie uh was definitely like the highlight of my week long movie though like i didn't really fully realize until like the day or so before that it was a three-hour movie oh wow I it's a long movie know that it i lo- i loved watching the whole thing i i do hope to watch it again but oh. if i were to like watch it on my own home thing set up I would have to make sure that I have a proper sound system for it just because I felt like the theater I was in was kind of so-so. Uh, I didn't have trouble hearing anything. It was honestly too loud, if anything, but oh, uh, okay. gotcha. some, some people with us kind of claimed that the audio was a little fuzzy, so um, it'd be nice to experience that again, but also just because there's some pretty... Uh, good audio usage in there i think it'd be good to have a proper system for it which is something i
1: do not have what like audio usage do they do with it is it like the explosion or something like that the explosion is definitely the first thing that like comes
0: to mind big surprise uh a a movie about the man who is the father of the uh nuclear weapon is uh yeah has 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 nukes in it so it's just one of those things yeah it it totally shocks you on the sound because uh like forewarning that like if you think uh if uh so when they first slight spoiler so when they first do like the the test uh okay. there is a delay and oh yep which is okay. i expected. i totally expected a delay because mm-hmm. that's just kind of how movies are done these days because they try and simulate the oh hey you know light moves faster than sound yeah. But the delay is incredibly significant. Like, it's so long that you almost think it's not going to happen. And it makes you jump.
1: Like, <laughs> oh, wow. So they so, really got you to experience probably what they felt when they well, were doing the test. Yeah. Well, because, and that was the thing as we were wondering, and I
0: haven't, like, looked into it, but we su- suggest, or uh, the group I went with, we thought that perhaps the very long delay. And the sound was potentially timed to how long it took for the sound to travel from the test site all the way to like the you know the the, the you know the people observing it
1: mm-hmm. i can see that if they were able to do that yeah crazy
0: long is really oh, cool though but yeah yeah it really lulls you into false sense of security because like i'm sitting there just like waiting 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 and it just doesn't come mm-hmm. and eventually it just hits you like a shockwave you're
1: like holy hell that's pretty awesome that's impressive that they are able to do that with a movie that to get you to experience that because i mean that's the goal of like film and stuff like that so yeah because like i remember there's there's just tons of accounts like when they drop it on hiroshima and stuff like that of soldiers when they hear it like this they saw like the mushroom cloud and they don't hear anything to like way after yeah.
0: So that's something I definitely want to see is like if 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 they timed it.
1: That'd be pretty cool if they are able to time it exactly as what it was or uh, pretty close like or, hey yeah. you're about this far and
0: like cuz it's it was crazy. That's awesome. That's pretty cool. So, uh, you know, uh, I enjoy history stuff like that. So it was interesting to see um so I didn't know much about Oppenheimer prior so uh i couldn't tell you how close or truthful it was did he at least say his famous uh quote not in the place you expect (laughs) interesting okay so yeah they they kind of give like the 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 potential nod of like hey this is like uh when and where he received like i guess the or when he first saw the line or the inspiration Mm -hmm. i guess yeah so yeah it's kind of it's kind of it's interesting but yeah it's a cool movie so i hope to watch it again at some point with like a nice like a home theater system would be nice you know good set of speakers yeah. nice tv things get that i don't nice, have
1: <laughs> get get a nice sound bar maybe
0: oh i'd want to do better than that get at least oh. like a few speakers a couple monitors
1: i don't I don't think I've seen that in anyone's house lately. I've seen every all the craze, it seems like, is those sound bars for home theater. Because they're so theater. easy. I mean, yeah. Like, they I mean,
0: do a pretty good job for the money, and, like, they provide pretty good sound, and they're super simple to set up.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, but
0: I can see that. You could definitely do better by having, you know, like, you know, a proper setup, you know, different, you know, speakers, an amp, uh, all that good stuff, receiver, like it's just it all depends on how much work you're willing to put into it. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that.
1: So, anyways, what are you up to? Um not much. Uh I can't remember the days kind of blend together uh with uh just uh raising my child, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty fair. Almost like a pattern you go through and it just kind of lulls you in this kind of hypnotic trance as you go through <laughs> you go through your day it's just kind of funny um and then before you know it oh the week's over <laughs> gotta Yikes. do this all over again yeah but yeah. Uh, yeah not too much it's it, it's uh been doing that and then honestly just researching and, and and enjoying that because uh that's all i got really have time for <laughs> on top of work understandable so. Yeah. So speaking of researching, um, normally this is when we go to talk about our sources, but this is going to be a very meaty episode. So we really don't have time to go in too much of the sources this week. Unlike the reign of Theodoric, where we had all this contemporary evidence by Procopius, just about everything in Clovis's reign is hearsay. And in certain cases, like Gibbon, it's hearsay of hearsay. So <laughs> we have to take all of this with a grain of salt. Granted, that's just about everything in history, to be honest. And then also the chronology of his reign is all over the place. Certain sources have seen it's in these set of events. And then in another source, it's no, it's these set of events because we don't exactly know exactly when certain things happened. And honestly, the kind of the timing of things would be important to how you see the story, uh, because of, he kind of goes through this very weird journey (laughs) on his way to just get a massive amounts of power. So speaking of power, Scott, what has previously happened on the quest for power? Okay. All
0: right. Let's let me let me sit here and think about this. All right. You, so
1: we you, had uh
0: a fellow, actually I I don't remember his name. Um uh, how about Childeric the 1st? That's right. <laughs> it's never the names that stick out to me, but like the 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 what's? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And how we kind of had half of his story is just kind of unknown and or legend. Mm-hmm. So a child, uh, a man who is, who may or may not have been the child of a five horned bull, uh, proceeded to uh, seduce his way across all of the, the uh, daughters of the kingdom and got ran out of town and reliable confidant uh, manages to supposedly persuade people on his behalf. He comes back. And uh, he kicks out uh, his replacement king or ruler, uh, which was a Roman general, I want to say, some kind of Roman leader. Uh, And then he comes back. And that's honestly most of what I remember. (laughs) Pretty, pretty, pretty on the money. Um, Oh, one thing is, yeah, he steals a queen. Kind of. The queen, I say steal. (laughs) She supposedly voluntarily chose to leave her previous husband, who uh, was hosting uh, Childeric during his exile, and she just kind of comes back with him, or afterwards.
1: Yeah, certain sources that she seduces him, or other sources he seduces her while in the court um, of the other king. It's kind of funny how that goes through. There was one little thing, is the person who um, was the child of the Five-Horned Beast was Merovich, which would have been his father. Ah, my mistake. Which is where we get the Merovingians, uh, the dynasty that we are currently running through. Okay. All right. So with that wonderful recap out of the way, let's get on to the main quest. This is going to be a long one. Welcome to the court of Clovis of House Merovingian, the first of his name, defender of the faith, the undisputed champion of Gaul, King of the Salian Franks, King of the Repuarian Repu- Pu- Franks, King of all the Franks, Consul of Rome, Co-Emperor of Rome. titles. So- That's a solid title right there. Yeah. That's some Game of Thrones stuff. Um, his original name is actually Clodovec, um, which eventually turned to Clovis through history. And then somehow that morphed into Louis, which is where all the King Louis are named after him, so that's kind of right. cool. I did not know that before the- the the true Louis the first he is the true louis the first uh as you probably have guessed, we know nothing of his childhood. Uh, since he's an heir of Childeric, it is most likely he was educated in politics, and alongside his training in fighting, he's pretty good at fighting. So I'm assuming he got some training in that, also with an axe when he was younger.
0: Or he was just born. He was just born competent.
1: Yes. Yeah. He was born wielding an axe, coming out into the world. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good legend to build around. There we go. We do not know the exact date of Childeric's death and Clovis's rise to power. It is assumed that at the age of 15 in 481, that he becomes king of the Salian Franks after his father, Childeric I, dies. So, he probably you know, was born. And I mean, now if came to power in 481. We don't really know per everything in this. There's a reason this is called the Dark Ages. It's not because of, you know, lack of education and stuff like that. No, it's because we just don't know that much about this kind of era. Yeah. All righty. So before we go fully into this reign, I'm going to throw a lot of names at you at this episode, but you don't need to worry about remembering most of them because a lot of them are going to be killed right off, right after we mention them. Speaking of which, do you remember Aegeus from last episode, which I think you did speak of before? Yeah. That's the um, general, the Roman is, general yep. or official. I don't know if yep. he was a general. He he was the, the general. He is okay. a Roman general. Um. It appears that he was the king of Soisan, and it's highly debated whether this king existed or where it even was. And um, up to this point, a lot of historians thought it was the last, like, true Gallo-Roman, you know, settlement at the time. Like, this is the last of the Romans is how it was always set up. But a lot of uh, historians now are calling BS on this and going, nah, I... It's a little too fishy, Hmm. Uh, which, I mean, it's the age of revisionism, I suppose. Well, when you
0: have to parse through old, you know, centuries of documentation
1: and lack thereof. (laughs) I mean, yeah. So there's plenty of room for revision. Oh, yeah. You can you can spin any of these stories however you want. Anyway, according to the Gregory of Tours, after Aegeus dies, a man named Sagrius takes his place as king of the Romans, and it's possible that he, Sagrius is his son, but we don't really know for sure. So we have that going on while Clovis is coming to, to of age. And the reason that this is all important that I just threw at you is about five years into his reign, Clovis and his king'sman Ragnachar, marched their forces to Soissons, and basically stood outside the walls and said, come out and fight us, you coward. Which is uh, one way to start a conversation. Makes an impression. It really impressions are everything. It really does. And uh, Sagrius without delay went, all right, I'll fight you and sent his troops out into battle. And uh, Sagrius watched his troops get absolutely annihilated. And uh, so he booked it and sought refuge under the Visigothic King Alaric II of the Kingdom of Toulouse. Sound familiar? Oh, yeah.
0: No, (laughs) this is is the moment we've been waiting for,
1: for. It is. Months. It has been but this is this is when the fun stuff of our of our podcast when all of our kings start intersecting this is this is the good stuff this is this was the story we opened up with actually in episode nine of king alaric the second's reign and uh do you remember the whole story that happened or a vague recollection
0: long time but But, it was uh, a long time uh, let's see king comes in alaric uh helps him out uh oh gosh clovis uh, I think like demands that he that he give him you know give him up, um, and then this is where it gets hazy for me. But uh, I know that then at one point or another, oh gosh, does Clovis actually come and kick his ass? No, there was a shaky uh, marriage alliance somewhere along here. I think,
1: eeh, marrying daughters or something. I mean, so Clovis is related to alaric and i f- think the way is is that clovis's sister is married to theodoric and yeah. their daughter is married to or i don't know if it's their daughter but for sure theodoric's daughter theodoric the great um who we discussed recently um his daughter then married alaric the second so Europe is already intermarrying, you know. We're already getting this whole, (laughs) whole, yeah, whole intermarriage thing started where cousins and family members are fighting each other. Yeah, Um, I just remember there being a lousy alliance between
0: the two or something like that not alliance, but like an agreement.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, this, this, this is the you're pretty close. So, uh, Clovis basically went up to Alaric and and like you said he he said hand him over and but he gave him the the nice little promise of or I'll end your entire kingdom yeah and and Alaric was shaking in his boots went all right yeah take him we don't want to fight you know this is the alliance quote unquote and uh Clovis probably took note of this and went hmm This king seems pretty pathetic compared to the stories of his father, Eurix. So uh, something to keep in mind for later. Horseshadowing. Uh, (laughs) Clovis then returned to Soissons with Sagrius in chains, and he put him under guard, threw him in a dungeon, and uh, while he went around and he secured all of the administration of Soissons. And then once Seagris was no longer any use for him, he secretly executed him and had his body disposed of like a mob hit. Effective. It is, it is. So pretty good start here, your reign, you know, asserting your power that way, becoming a mobster. Uh, Right now, during his reign, Clovis doesn't really have an iron grip around the Franks yet. Um, In fact, the Franks are all kind of split apart. Uh, the Rapurian Franks, they're over in Cologne, Germany, and they have, and much of the Rhine River, did not acknowledge him as their sovereign, even though he very much wants them to, and he didn't have the allegiance of Salian Franks. So there must have been another kingdom of Salian Franks, and up in modern Belgium, in northern France, and he didn't he didn't have their allegiance either. And so not everyone heeded his call when he said we should go to war against Siegris. And uh, so he summoned, what we didn't talk about during that little battle is someone who did come was this man named Charik, who was also a family member of his. And Charik didn't do anything at the battle. In fact, he just stood at a distance out the outcome. And just was like, "I'm going to befriend whoever wins." Yeah, <laughs> pretty you know, solid, you know, pretty so- solid, uh, you know, typical thing, you know, why why back why back any horse when he could just back the winning one? Uh, but the problem is is Clovis won, and this pissed him off because he asked for his help. So he captured Chiaric and his son. He gave him tuncture, which means uh, he forced them to cut their hair so they could never rule again and like become a monk, essentially. Mm. But later in his reign, uh, apparently Chiaric couldn't keep his mouth shut and tr- was speaking of trying to take, o- take out Clovis. So Clovis decided, nah, I'm just going to get rid of y- uh, you two. And uh, put Chiaric and his son f- to death, and then took their treasures and kingdoms. Two threats have been eliminated, and now he has another kingdom added to his collection. A fine addition, yes, it is a fine addition to his <laughs> collection. <laughs> so remember his you know his family member Ragna Ragnachar, who you know helped him against yeah. The uh, so what he did um to really thank him is he bribed Ragnachar's followers, uh so probably Ragnachar's nobles, with false gold uh to hand over Ragnachar and his brother Rickkar, and then the nobles went, sure, yeah, they didn't realize the gold was fake was false, um wow. but they uh they went sure, yeah we'll take the money and run, you know? So then when they brought him to Clovis, Clovis proceeded to insult Ragnachar that he humiliated their family by letting himself be captured. <laughs> he said this, and then he took his ax to Ragnachar's head. That's what a some,
0: murderous 15 year old. That's some or pretty teenager. Cold,
1: yeah. That's some pretty <laughs> cold blooded shit right there. Uh, After that, he turned to uh, the son, Rikar, and then insulted him, saying, if you would have helped your brother, or, what did I say, brother? Brother. Yeah, brother. If you would have helped your brother, you wouldn't be in this situation, and then proceeded to grab his axe and then decapitate him as well.
0: A real gem. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Really, really, uh really kind of him so the brothers were killed he got their you know their their kingdom and stuff like that uh added more to his collection and the kings came back it turns out they were a bunch of these kings were his followers which i thought was interesting and they went up to clovis and went hey you gave us fake gold and clovis goes yeah that's what traders get and then (laughs) they only deserve fool's gold and then they immediately knew, oh, shit, Clovis is going to, you know, kick our ass. And uh, so they begged, begged for mercy. And Clovis was very merciful, and he gave them a swift death.
0: Ah, so much different than the other
1: deaths. <laughs> yes, correct. Yeah, very merciful. Uh, so all of those fit men uh, that Clovis just killed were all of his own family. I got to put that out there. So he went on to kill as many of his relatives and other kings before they would dethrone him. And he would just start adding their treasure and kingdoms slowly to his uh, 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 just expanding kingdom.
0: Well, I mean, we kind of discussed this earlier about how uh, apparently land is divvied up fairly equally at that day and
1: age so i don't know if it happens uh we're gonna talk about it because uh that's the one bone i have to pick with clovis uh i think it is done but it is not like an absolute set in stone precedent as of right now um i don't i think uh it is um among certain german tribes it definitely is that way i know the uh, the thuringians who we will talk about in a couple of episodes did that and i think also the burgundians did that as well so maybe it already was uh but it wasn't like uh, absolute precedent set in stone yet yeah it just felt like a way of reclaiming the kingdom so to speak and by reclaiming mm-hmm. mean taking from every other uh lord yeah exactly that's basically what he he did is he just he, he took all this grand group of people, and this was never any big kingdom yet, but there was just, you know, a bunch of people, and he went and, you know, well, united them all together through brute force and manipulation and outright <laughs> treachery. Classic. But here's the thing. This is, you know, this is horrific, <laughs> as we would think but there's no divine right rule yet. So it was survival of the fittest. Whoever attracted the most followers was whoever rewarded their warriors with the most gold. So the only way to keep his followers loyal to him is he had to keep winning and he had to keep giving them the spoils of war. So, in order to hold on to this power he's been grabbing, you have to constantly keep eliminating threats. And like you said, they're all these little kingdoms, and they're all your kingsmen, so they can, you know, they're a threat to you, essentially. So, yeah, it's pretty horrific, but it's how the rich and powerful survived during the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, since there was no administration to say, yeah, that person keeps their land and all of this opening that we just had is the foundation the real foundation of the merovingian dynasty all righty let's take a break we just killed everyone we know let's let's take a little let's stop some of the bloodshed clovis at this time is still a pagan but despite being a pagan he he developed really good relationships with roman bishops and what i mean by good relationships is when he like captured their area he didn't sack their cities and steal everything that was his agreement with them and because he knew that the roman bishops at this time especially in france held the area together because there was no more roman government that had vanished so the church filled that vacuum in and the bishops were the ones who controlled everything now big risk letting them live it is a pretty big risk it is uh especially with christianity's growing power at this time here's the thing is yes it is a big risk but his forces were not even close to that of rome's imperial military even at the fall They were not really that, not even close in terms of numbers. So Mm. while he is out there murdering all his family members, he needs the bishops on his side to stop rebellions from happening from the lay people who would easily outnumber the Frankish warriors. So you can be highly trained in everything, but if you're outnumbered, you're screwed. So
0: yeah, yeah just uh having some rival uh political figures is always a tough one
1: yeah yeah it is um so he's he's starting to develop good relations with with the catholics of the time which is interesting very different from our previous kings and according to gregory of tours clovis sent an embassy to the burgundian palace uh basically he was probably, you know, establishing relations or something like that with the kingdom of Burgundy. And it was at this time that when these men entered the palace, they saw this beautiful maiden and her name was Clotilda. And what they saw, a quote from uh, Gregory of Tours, I'll let you say this, And then when they
0: saw that she was of good bearing and wise and learned that she was family of the king, they reported this to King
1: Clovis. So Clovis wanted this girl bad. He really, he wanted her in the worst way. And um, there's a couple of reasons for this. One, she's Catholic. So if he marries into the Catholic, now he has even more good graces with those bishops Mm -hmm. and so he sent his embassy demanding that her fa that um her father which wasn't her father really uh the burgundian king gundobad turn her over and uh what i mean by that is she wasn't gundobad's daughter and in fact gundobad killed her father and we'll go that into clotilda's episode so long story short gundobad was probably very glad to get rid of this burden uh you know in his in his household oh well so it it all works out well in the end yeah yeah so but gregory of tours says that gundobad he was really afraid to refuse and he surrendered clotilda to the men and they took the girl and brought her swiftly to the king the king was glad when he saw her, and he married her. We have no idea about her feelings on this. Probably her sight. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to be honest. She probably is pretty happy to get out of you know Gundobad's court. I would be yeah. not want to live with the man who murdered my family. I'd be pretty ticked yeah. off. Yeah, sounds at the very least probably doesn't want her
0: there yeah so yeah. yeah this is this is probably better for all parties involved at least you're going to be surrounded
1: by people who actively want you there or at least yeah, ex-
0: or at least the most powerful man wants you there yeah and that's, that's really all that matters
1: yeah and you can't exactly say no <laughs> to, the, to this yeah. man uh uh at this time the burgundian court was not just ruled by gundobad as i was uh kind of describing earlier it is also run by his brother god diesel? Uh, How are you going to say that? Go Godidjisel? There you go. That sounds good. And, you know, co-ruling always works well on our podcast. Never fails. One day, Clovis receives a letter from King Godigisel. He breaks the wax seal and he reads, quote,
0: If you gave me aid in attacking my brother, so that I may be able to kill him in battle or drive him from the country. I will pay you every year, whatever tribute you yourself wish to impose. Clovis
1: probably couldn't believe what he was reading. Blank check. I get, (laughs) yeah, blank check. I get to kill someone. I get paid what, yeah, I get whatever I want and I get to earn brownie points for my wife for getting vengeance for her family sign me up so with that clovis summoned his gang and marched south gundobad had no idea about his brother's plots and he sent a letter to his brother god uh, we gotta call him god g So <laughs> we gotta call uh. him? <laughs> i don't know how to say this man's name <laughs> goji <G. laughs> whatever you want as long as we uh, are making it clear who's who Okay, we'll say Godji because, I don't know, why not? Um, Segundo Bad, who had no idea about his brother's plot, send Gadji a letter going, help! You know, if we unite together, maybe we can stop Clovis from coming to kick our ass. Oof. And, and uh, Gadji writes, oh, of course, brother. Yes, with us two united, he doesn't stand a chance so the three armies of clovis gundobad and Gaji converge at dijon france and it is at this moment like in every movie gaji reveals himself to be the traitor and needless to say gundobad was pretty solidly defeated and he fled to avignon yeah that's about right yep as a, as a last-ditch effort, though, Gundobad sent an emissary to Clovis, and at first, this emissary pretended to be a traitor, and he's like, I will actually support you, and I will betray, you know, Gundobad as well. And uh, <laughs> according to Gregory, Clovis was, quote, entertained by the storytelling, which I love. <laughs> is a great way of saying yeah bullshit and then he he began to immediately marshal his troops and attack gundobad wow but before clovis actually attacked the emissary went all right yeah yeah you're right i'm sorry i was wrong here's the thing if you burn everything to the ground around you know the castle it doesn't harm gundobad he can sit behind there he's got tons of supplies and starve your warriors out under siege why not just have why not just take a you know a tribute every year from him and Is that what Clo- Bad wants yeah gundo like i will basically pay you to go away every year wow and all Clovis right. went all right took the money and left And it was later that he received news that Gundobad actually managed to kill God G and, and assumed control of his lands. Oh, so he loses (laughs) half his money. (laughs) Well, I'm the fact that, um, Gundobad wasn't killed. I don't think that God G, uh, paid Clovis. I highly doubt he did. Can't imagine he would.
0: Yeah, he he missed out on all them sweet uh payments from Yeah, he uh, did
1: And so Clovis went, "Oh, well, all right. I guess I got to, you know, deal with Gundobad again." And somehow the two came up together and they negotiated some sort of peace, and we have no idea what the terms were. The only thing that it looks like is that Clovis was above Undobad in some capacity as like an overking or something like that. Some point now in his reign, as Clovis's reign is dragging on, he will strategically convert to Christianity. And by Christianity, I mean Nicene Christianity, he is the first king, I think, that we have that converts to Catholicism. Yeah, I believe you're right. So, Gregory of Tours has this whole story that involves his wife, Clotilda, constantly getting him try to convert. And we'll go into the story in her episode, but we just don't have time in Clovis's episode, and then this gives her more stuff to talk about. But long story short, the Frankish army and Clovis are locked in a brutal conflict with the Alamanni tribe. They are on the verge of defeat, and as a last-ditch Hail Mary, Clovis cries out to the heavens, basically saying, Jesus Christ, God, Holy Spirit, you know, whatever you are, my wife thinks you're this all-powerful God, and my gods clearly suck. I mean, we're losing this battle, and we're not doing so hot. If you really are all-powerful, prove it, and if you do, I'll make you a deal. You help me kill these Alamanni bastards, and I will actually get baptized in your honor. Wonderful. <laughs> As a result, he won the battle. God must have accepted the terms. And uh, Clovis was baptized. And thus, the, the, uh, the Nicene Christian Christian kingdom was born. Yeah, pretty much. It's uh, I find it pretty convenient for this whole story that this lines up exactly like um, Emperor Constantine when he converts to Christianity. Hey, you know, if, uh, <laughs> it's, it's using uh, the multiple, uh, or, hey, it's, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, it's that is so... the same tactic twice. <laughs> it's true. It clearly worked for one empire. Let's make it work for this kingdom. But what is really important is that he converts to Nicene Christianity and not Arian Christianity. All of our previous dynasties were Arian and that... We saw what that did for him. It all made him go pretty much extinct, except for the Visigoths. They just collapsed. Yeah. So this was an incredibly smart strategic move by Clovis. This gives him something to tie his Frankish warriors and his Gallo-Roman subjects together. They are now going to be educated in, you know, services with the same bishops and now they're starting to form the same belief system. So you're now starting to form the same identity. You're taking two complete opposites and putting them together, and Mm. you have control over them now. And this is gonna have huge implications on Christianity when we go into the medieval period. God and Jesus right now are becoming more like Thor and Odin, And less of like what we think today, the reason I bring this up is, is it's going to be like the center of our podcast when we're in the West and what we think is blatant corruption. And like, this isn't following the religion at all. You're killing people and stuff. This is what they actually came to believe as part of their normal life and their true beliefs think about it. This hardened warrior Clovis is not going to become some peace loving person. So clearly the faith has to budge a little bit.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, uh, 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 blood of
1: Christ, body of Christ and, uh, kill the non-believers. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, basically, uh, I think there's actually some, uh, I forgot there was some like archeology span thing that they found like Jesus actually like holding a spear and like attacking someone during this time. So like, you can actually really see what their beliefs are at this point, especially among like the Germanic Christians. Yeah. Well, when you're a,
0: uh, constantly warring, I say nation set of, uh, kingdoms and tribes and whatnot, you kind of have to, uh, have to account for that that lifestyle
1: yeah so i'm gonna give you like why would clovis you know more than just a little bit of control i'm gonna take a quick bonus we're gonna take a bonus quest and we're gonna like go i'm sorry if i offend anyone here it is not my intention um but we are i'm gonna try to explain this whole christianity thing during this period in a way that you may not have heard before so you can know why the church just had this iron grip of people during the medieval period i don't know about you but in most stories i find myself like trying to like wanting to shake them like how are you you know believing all of this stuff yeah different time exactly and that is basically what was frustrating me is um everything is says you know it's just it's the medieval times it's just a different time it's just how it was you know religion does that to people and it's you know that that just didn't satisfy my way of thinking so i I went to go research in this and what i found is that christianity in this time period the way it's designed is to have an iron grip around you So what I mean by that is it literally began as a cult during the Roman times, the sources at this time, you can actually look them up saying like, Hey, look, there's this weird cult that's popping up. It's something called Christianity. They're kind of annoying and they're kind of pushy. So they they start out as that way. Next in this cult, it is your God given duty to spread the faith as much as possible you have to do this to save yourself and them from hell which is a very real possibility and this is how the church and the state got interconnected because it started spreading like crazy because of you know it more than paganism was not so gun-ho about conversion like the way christianity really really is yeah like So the next thing is a major tenet in Christianity is that there are no gods and only me. So this is like a cult saying anything outside is wrong. Only we have the truth. And if you get people to accept something like this, you can get them to do a lot of horrific things in the name, you know, of your cult of God, of the truth. You know, like the story of drinking the Kool-Aid. That's basically what it is yeah next you are to send a tithe to the church which means a portion of your income right here is the church is literally taxing people and they are redistributing it to how you know the men in charge see fit sound like something else you know pretty much a quasi state or government yeah next the church tries to control (laughs) let's be honest your sex life you should only have sex under their conditions and not for pleasure sex happens to be a very basic human need and was used quite a bit in paganism constantly telling someone they are wicked for doing something that is natural and like is a you know like an instinct is really good at keeping them down if you keep feeling them making them feel bad for themselves And I'm not even going to go into how they allow the clergy to clearly ignore this rule. (laughs) But again, like most cults, the top can ignore all the rules that the bottom have to follow. So what's the most things that control the, like, what are the big things that control the world? Honestly, it's probably the theme of our podcast. A quest for power. Yeah. That's... Well, what is it? it. Money, sex, power. Church has it all. The church has your entire life from when you are born to you are baptized and you are buried and given last rites. You put this whole concoction together and then you add hope. In these brutal times of constant war, disease, famine, horrific times to live in, Christianity offers you salvation to anyone who just believes and follows this path. And the big thing with this is paganism does not. The pagan gods are very cruel. They love toying with humans. I mean, come on, look listen to all of the Greek stories of how Zeus is a horrible, horrible god. Yeah, he's not an upstanding gentleman, that's for sure. He literally punishes Prometheus for giving fire to humans, which we kind of need. It's kind of important. So it's many times in paganism, you appease the gods for no reason other than to worship them. And basically, please don't make bad things happening. Whereas in Christianity, God loves you unconditionally, even if you are this wicked human being. So you have all that. And then also during this period, the clergy, the bishops, the church is the only people, the only institutions that had any compassion to the sick, poor, handicapped, children, widows, and the church is the in only institution that educates women during this era. Look at that. So that is why it is able to now think of generations of that that is why this entire time the church has such an iron grip of the medieval era and it is not till the black death that its power is challenged yeah that's a pretty faith-shaking event (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it is so the reason i went through all of that is to show how advantageous it is for clovis like now you see why it's really good for him to convert and why a lot of kings actually chose this way to convert is because the church is that ridiculously powerful in the middle ages if you can't beat them might as well you know attach yourself to them exactly so now nice seeing christian king clovis get the bishops to say whatever he wants to get the masses to control them and to prevent rebellion he doesn't need to just be on their side he just needs to tell them now and they're like yes yeah you you converted you're you know you're awesome and so since the church is basically the government at this time and clovis recognizes that he puts all of his secular and his religious infrastructure into one organization and this is how he starts be gilding the framework of, you know, modern day France As this is how he starts uniting everything together.
0: Yeah, that's kind of cool.
1: Yeah. And by combining this together, Clovis is now the most powerful king in the former Western Roman Empire. He is seen as a true defender of the faith for the dominant Nicene Christian creed, even though he's a very... (laughs) violent homicide not homicidal well yeah homicidal maniac but also familiacidal maniac yeah it's just homicide but with standards (laughs) exactly so with this whole conversion out of the way let's jump into some more bloodshed Clovis despite Clovis consolidating his power a lot of his rivals are still out there and uh, we can't have that so even though I think you know the story of Clovis's like conversion in the battle of the Alamanni is crap i think for sure he did fight a defensive battle with the Alamanni, and the battle that gregory actually refers to is becomes known as the battle of tobac T- T- and the reason we actually know this is because apparently there are documents of the austro in ostrogothic italy that d- in five hundred nine, that discusses a mass influx of Alemannic refugees. Okay, so we actually know like this kind of thing happened. It also appears in this battle that Clovis called on King Sigibert of the Ripurian Franks to help defend this territory with him, and. Despite this being a defensive campaign, the Alamanni are absolutely destroyed. So even though they're the attackers, they get annihilated during these, you know, vicious, vicious battles between the two nations. Unfortunately for King Sigebert, his knee was wounded, and now he becomes Sigebert the Lame. Which what is- a title! <laughs> <Took> an <laughs> arrow to the knee. <laughs> yeah, unfortunate. So it is at this time, you know, the Alamanni have been dealt with. He's got peace with the Burgundians. He's now a holy defender of the faith. He's like, all right. He looks south. And he remembers Alaric II. And uh, he wasn't exactly the strongest king. And in fact, it seems like he's having a rough time of it. His spies are letting him know that, like, a ton of ambitious warriors of the Visigoths are heading to Spain because they think that beating up the Swaby is way more fun than fighting the Franks. It's the rite of passage. <laughs> it really is. It, are you,
0: you can't be a Visigothic king if you're not going to beat up the Swaybe.
1: No, exactly. So, since he's a holy defender of the faith, all he has to say is that the Visigoths are Aryan heretics and they need to be erased and... Yep. So I'm fired up. Yep, let's go. Let's go to war. This is all the justification he needs. So in 507, once allied again with Sigabert the Lame and now Gundobad of the Burgundians. I wonder how his wife, by the way, felt about that, that he allied with his wife's family's killers. Well that uh, had to be an awkward conversation.
0: Yeah, that's something where you just uh <laughs> You just try and sit it on the other ends of the table. Just don't bring that up. <laughs> just don't bring it up. Make the table re- <laughs> dinner table really long when you're meeting together. <laughs> there like, you yeah. go. <laughs> you're
1: at the kid's table today. <laughs> I like that. So with his new coalition, he strikes into Visigothic territory. And Alark II, he is trying to delay Clovis. Without engaging him in full on battle, because he needs some desperate reinforcements from, you know, daddy, father in law, Theodoric the Great. And since Theodoric, you know, is trying to get reinforcements there as fast as possible, but he thinks of himself as the Emperor of the West. We didn't really talk about this in his episode, but I was reading for more and more sources that he really thought of himself, you know, as like the new emperor and I control, you know, I make peace around everything here. So he's trying to stop this from happening. And he sends Clovis a strongly worded letter, basically saying, don't make me come down there and deal with you, you play nice with your brother or your kingdom will be taken away. I'm sure it worked well. Def, yes, exactly. And before Theodoric could aid Alaric II, Alaric II's own men got ticked off that Alaric wasn't doing anything. And while Clovis was just out there in the kingdom, just taking large swaths of Visigothic land and just plundering everything in sight. So if you remember episode nine Alaric's episode, you probably remember what happens next, right? Oh gosh, long time though i i don't really remember the details all right so in one corner we have clovis the first who has his battle-tested hearted and warriors Sigebert the lame and gundobad in the other corner we have alaric Second, who has some pissed off disorganized nobles who have attacked straw men in their free time they're not exactly out there warring the Battle of Vui begins, and in the melee, Alaric II is slaughtered, the Visigoths are routed, the Kingdom of Toulouse collapses, and the Visigoths flee down to regroup in Spain. Right. It is there we ended off in the Visigoths, and where we will pick up when we go back to them. Uh, but now, Clovis is the undisputed champion of Gaul. Even though he didn't rule at all, he is still re- the most ridiculously overpowered king in that area. Theodoric the Great managed to save a strip of the southern coast from the Franks. So Clovis must have been pretty powerful, but maybe it would have overextended him to go that far. And um, some, I don't even know, I've never heard of this group before, but the Amorican Bakude? Bacadude, uh, Bakadude? <laughs> bak-a-dude? That sounds they, right. And we're creating today. And British refugees are still holding on Brittany. Do you know where Brittany is? It's
0: not Britain. No,
1: <laughs> no, it is not. I, I know it, it, it always turned it always turned me around. It is the like this most northwest tip of France is called Brittany. Okay. I think it's because the Britons, like the tribe, the Britons used to live there. Okay. I figured it was probably something close to it. Yeah. And since he's a defender of the faith, he was able to secure an alliance with the Eastern Roman Empire because the Eastern Roman Empire wanted to keep Theodoric in check. They don't really care about the Franks, but Theodoric is, you know, bothering them and he's, you know, an evil Aryan heretic. We can't have him extending his power. Exactly. So the Eastern Emperor Anastasius, uh, Took their relationship, though, one step further, and he gave Clovis the title of consul in 508, and according to Gregory at Tours, even recognized him as co-emperor. Pretty impressive.
0: Yeah, although, again, if we're talking with um, a hint of uh, Nicene Christian bias, that would be a pretty big win if you were trying to spin a story that way.
1: Oh yeah, definitely would like, be. Hey,
0: look who was co-emperor.
1: hmm This this Nicene Christian guy. Mm-hmm. He's our he's our man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, the Byzant not well, the Byzantines, the Eastern Roman Empire love to play the barbarians against each other. Yeah. It just yeah. you co- just it just feels odd to
0: have co-emperor because just sounds like something that's less likely to be
1: recognized um co-emperor i think is because of for the longest time i think at this point even maybe because rome may not have felt dead yet because theodoric the great you know kind of held this vast area and so maybe they thought when theodoric you know would die that clovis might be able to step in and you know like redeem the empire i don't know for sure but maybe You would think he's co-emperor, he's defender of the faith. He'd be pretty satisfied, right? Nah. While chilling in Paris, he secretly sent a letter to Cloderic, the son of Sigurbert the Lame of the Rapurian Franks. And in the letter he goes, your father's pretty weak. And should something happen to him, I see no reason why your kingdom wouldn't go, why his kingdom wouldn't go to you, especially with our friendship. Oof. And a little while later, Clovis receives a letter from Cloderic and it states, hey, my father's dead. I have all his property. I'm the king now. Send a man and grab whatever treasure you want. Clovis sent a...
0: Gosh, this just thinks of, uh,
1: (laughs) Clovis doesn't like traitors. No, (laughs) no. Yeah. Keep that in mind. Yeah. Clovis sent a reply. Wow. I am so honored by your generosity. Please show my men all the treasure that you have. That didn't raise a red flag. Must have been. Yeah. Yeah. Just show me, just show me the most valuable stuff. Oh, also these men happen to be carrying axes. You know, as you do when you inspect treasure, you carry axes around. And and he said nothing? What? <laughs> Did they roll on that twenty on deception? <laughs> like <laughs> really confused by this. Really Any... impressive linguist on his letters. Any <laughs> yeah. Anyway the cloderick led these men to the treasure room and he bent down to be like yeah see this kind of awesome piece and as he bent down suddenly his skull was split open by an axe boy that's uh yeah it's about (laughs) what we expected yeah i was gonna say if you if you've been paying attention to (laughs) all the episode up to this point that's uh that's exactly what we'd expect so Clovis heard of Cloderic's death, and he rode straight to the capital of Thuringians, and he summoned all of them. And he gave a speech saying, look, the Cloderic, the son of my family member, he killed his father, saying that I wanted him killed. And apparently he died while he was stealing his father's treasures, and, you know, his skull got split open. I can assure you though, that I have no idea why this horrible series of events happened and I would never kill a family member.
0: He says it with his hand or with his fingers crossed behind
1: his back. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, but unfortunately it did happen. Look, people of Thuringia, I'm gonna give you some advice. If I were in your position, I would turn to Clovis and ask to be under his protection. Not a single person went what wait, wait a minute. Instead, they all banged on their shields and rode Clovis on the shield declaring him their king and they gave him all of Sigibert's treasures. And now he is king of the Ripurian Franks. Good for him.
0: Well, I honestly, <laughs> even if they know better, it's like you really want to like, you know, deal with this. I mean, You've have... lost your two heads of state. Yeah. Sometimes literally. <laughs> yeah.
1: So he had murdered just about every family member and every king in Gaul. And he figured, all right, maybe I should start consolidating my power now. You know, leave the killing alone. So his focus now turned to legal, ministration, and church issues. You know, the fun stuff. He published laws that binded all of his subjects, whether they were Frankish or Gallo-Roman together. And in 511, he convened the First Council of Orleans. Thirty-two bishops came together to like, hammer out church issues after Clovis erased the Visigoths from most of Gaul. So, you know, like the church had to be like, all right, what are, you know, our rules now that we have so power? Yeah. What do we care about? His decision to embrace the bishops, use them in, as an ally instead of, like you said, murder them all, and included them in critical decisions for his kingdom. This all planted the seeds of medieval France and it is also traditionally accepted that Clovis died in the same year 511 he was buried in Paris as a Christian king and that's all i have for him all got right. to, ready to raid him
0: uh yeah let's let's see what we got for this boy
1: royal power
0: how long do you think his reign was it's got to be a long time he's probably like uh want to give him 20 years
1: yeah a little bit off he was raised on a shield in 481 and he died in 511 so around 30 years that's pretty impressive for a violent violent life that he didn't die in any of those battles well you know he lives a long time if he starts doing boring stuff so i don't think i need to really add anything extra to this one um (laughs) What what are you
0: thinking here? Well, honestly, he's uh, you know kind of went from uh, having at least some decent base to uh, controlling everything, at least as far as his relatives are concerned. So, uh, it feels like a ten to me.
1: Oh yeah, it easily feels like a ten to me. He took this little Salian Frankish kingdom and built France.
0: Yeah, all intents yeah. When and you purposes.
1: Start... Yeah, when you start creating, yeah, when you when you
0: can start directly tying things to the modern day equivalents. Yeah. You know you're doing you know you're doing something right. So tens all around.
1: Infamy. Again, I don't think I need to really add too much here. He lied, manipulated, <laughs> murdered yeah. in cold blood. <laughs> all his way to achieving all of his power <laughs> yeah he's <laughs> and, you know does pretty good i feel like he's not like all the way up there on infamy for me really i think he is because of the way he was able to manipulate these people and and in the cold-blooded way that like what more evil do you get he plot he did the plotting he did all right he didn't lying. destroy churches he, just dest- feel it- he destroyed a lot of land. Yeah,
0: that's fair. It just feel. yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's just kind of a weird one where it feels like he go- doesn't feel super dastardly. I, he's, you know, super cunning. Uh, It just doesn't feel like the level of like, oh man, this guy is like,
1: uh, well, you know, I, I, super I, evil. I also kinda- didn't have time to go into, you know, he sacked all of these. <laughs>
0: that's know? fair. Yeah, I guess so that's true. We did gloss
1: over a lot. Yeah, We'd I guess lost like, over yeah. a lot when he I mean, when he killed all his family members. That's fair. I, I mean,
0: <laughs> it just yeah, it feels like maybe it's because we're looking at like his such good deeds, good in a, a rough sense, yeah, powerful okay. deeds that it becomes kind of a weird Mm-hmm. and you're like mm, is it infamous
1: or is it just like i think it's
0: honestly par for the course during that time
1: i mean i honestly think it's both i think he took it one step further than anyone i've ever seen before none of our other kings have even come close to this kind of manipulation this evil plotting like this is didn't sell the kingdom <laughs> that's <is> true <laughs> um
0: yeah no for me uh, I'll stick with a 9 on this just because it just feels like that a lot of it is... He, he kind of just did what a lot of people did at the time, just with a lot more political finesse. <laughs> I'm giving him the full 10, I think. All right. I figured. So, a 9 and a 10. 19. Awesome stuff. Good start. Oh, yeah. All right. Religious
1: passion. All right. So... This is one I fought with myself over. Listening to Dan Carlin's hardcore history and my own research really kind of shook up the way I view the medieval church. And while I believe clearly he used the church for his own gains, I would never describe him as a pious king. He clearly demonstrates a lot of religious passion. At his at paris in his capital he and clotilde established the abbey of saint genevieve where both of them were buried he is essentially named defender of the faith he completely eradicated the rival religion arianism in france and united it in christianity he advanced nicene christianity massively by doing this he made The church part of his government he called the first council of orleans where a lot of boring stuff happened that i you don't want me to go into but it really really furthers the church he advanced the church more than anyone we've ever covered by a mile so yes he's not pious by any stretch but he had a lot of religious passion when he was converted I think he took his I think he took his cunning and stuff and then infused that with the with the church and it really took off and he did a lot for the church. Yeah.
0: I I think that you know for me it's like a full marks on 10 just because again you can't surmise or we can't possibly know mm-hmm. how much people actually believed, you know, a king because there there's a certain level of like yeah, what's logical to do versus You know just believing in uh you know believing in jesus with all your heart that is something you never really truly can know because even even if they're writing in private letters to other people no one is you know in the right mind really going to just confess to be yeah yeah a false believer so Mm -hmm. because that's the thing that literally gives you your right to rule in a lot of places so especially later on yes so yeah, we can't. So we can't. We don't know if they're like any like you know, cl- closeted pagan I mean, or yeah. atheists or what have you. So we just have to take what their actions on face value. So I think it's a ten.
1: Stability. He took a very unstable area and made it stable. There was a lot of inner fighting between the different little kingdoms. He <laughs> destroyed all the inner fighting. <laughs> through you know instability but then he united it all under his government under war and Christianity together kind of fusing everything together and bringing a lot of stability almost like to the times of Rome yep yep iron and
0: blood all right yeah I mean feels like a pretty solid full marks for five here so I'd agree time for our uh our probably less exciting part
1: royal demise I mean, I don't, I don't, I couldn't find how he died. He died a legend, <laughs> which is kind of an odd thing that we know
0: that we've heard so much about him, but of all the things you hear about it, you know, we didn't hear about how he died.
1: He just, uh, he just uh, died with a smile on his face. He did, yeah. Uh, with yeah. All right. Um, I got nothing. I'm gonna say zero. Yeah. I mean this is his worst thing yeah not exactly
0: the uh most exciting way to go but you know good for
1: him (laughs) Mm -hmm. all right legacy all right so dynasty aspect he is gonna do something you know he just got done killing all of his family members correct yep he took all this time to set up all this stability and he does something so stupid that's going to set years and years of civil war and family infighting in France long after the Merovingians are gone. And I really actually hate him personally for having to figure out how to tell the story of the, this really messed up family yeah. that owns all these different parts at one time. <laughs> um, That is my biggest knock against him. Here's the big things. Um, So, like I said, he, yeah, he establishes the president, you know, this is the precedent I was talking about earlier, this right here, that's the biggest negative, but otherwise he left a massive impact. He unites France and Nicene Christianity, completely kills Arianism out. He wipes out countless kingdoms and unnamed tribes. He is seen as the first king of France, not technically correct, but he is virtually mm-hmm. you know, seen as that way. And I, like we talked in the religious, um, I cannot like say enough how massive of an impact him converting to Christianity with the gusto that he did that r- strengthened the church beyond you know, what in their wildest dreams they could have wished for.
0: Yeah, literally. And all the stuff
1: and all the King Louis are named after him. I, 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 even with that huge negative of the dynasty aspect, his family, the Merovingians, despite all the infighting also are going to rule for a pretty long time. We're going to be with them. I have to go full marks, ten. I agree. Yeah, full
0: marks, tens. Tens all around. He's uh, impressive.
1: Yes, he is. He's been my favorite king so far that we have researched. There's just so much. Mm-hmm. This one took a long time <laughs> to put
0: together. So, yeah, in an effort of keeping things timely, yeah, we we we've, we've glanced over a lot, I'm sure. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> so... All right. Well, with that only of a tidbit of his life story, uh, we get him to his final score of 89. Wow.
1: Is that the highest one? Uh, I believe Or did Geyseric so. beat him? No, he's
0: higher than Geyseric. Wow. By how much? Four points.
1: Nice. So pretty narrow margin. <laughs> I think he deserves to be higher than Geyser. Geyser did some insane stuff, but Clovis is just on another level. He is so he has been so much fun to to research. I, he is one of my favorite kings that I never really knew too much about well that's all we have for clovis can't get enough of him the battle royale podcast um who also is a rexy uh pod and they're fantastic they focus on the french monarch so they if you want france that's what they do and they do a really good job at it they cover him in their episode one ben and eliza the hosts are very entertaining and dan carlin's hardcore history episode number 69 twilight of the ace he, he shows this very dark side of Clovis and he compares Clovis to the leader of a biker gang. And it has a really fun, like analysis and his conversion to Christianity and the effects that that has, um, Hmm. by, you know, a Germanic warlord converting to Christianity. And he's really where I took this script and took it a completely different way than when I first thought of writing about Clovis. And, uh, I don't know if you've Scott, you've ever heard of Dan Carlin, um, but his podcast is hands down the best history podcast, no contest. He has a masterful storyteller and he just sucks you right into the narrative, even though it's just a lot of, lot of details. That's why it's called hardcore history. Hmm, very cool. And he doesn't pull punches when he talks about humanity's darkest moments. So he's really cool. All right. Well that brings us to the end of Clovis the first let let us know what you thought of him we'd love to hear from you the listener you can catch us anywhere on um on Facebook and Instagram at quest for power or email us at quest for power at gmail.com if you would like to support what we do here and become a lord lady or noble in your own right You can find us at patreon.com slash quest for power link will be in the show notes and next episode we get a queen again we're gonna review clovis's pious but fierce bride and our first saint saint queen clotilda all right awesome and with that yeah pretty cool and finally with that Until next time, the king is dead.
0: Long live the queen!